In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 28. Saul is in trouble. The Philistines are ready to attack him and his army, but for Saul, Yahweh is silent. In his despair, he turns to a forbidden source of help, a medium who he believes may be able to conjure up Samuel from the dead, the prophet who had anointed him as king. What Saul receives is a message of doom and judgment against him. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Wednesday, June 7th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. We're grateful to God and to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation for their generous support of Thy Strong Word. LHF is a ministry that makes Lutheran resources available in different languages. You can find out more about their work at lhfmissions.org. Well, to help us go along with Saul to meet the Witch of Indoor, it is my guest, the Reverend Roger Mullet, pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Churubusco, Indiana. Good morning, Pastor Mullet. Good morning. Glad to be with you again. Oh, great to be with you, too. Also in one of the, I think, the more interesting sections of the Scriptures. Of course, it's all enriching. It's all God's Word. But sometimes you run across a particular passage and you go, this is challenging in more ways than one. Uh, and 1 Samuel 28, I think, is one of those passages. I mean, we're dealing with King Saul seeking out mediums, conjuring up the dead. It presents to us questions about if she really is able to conjure up Samuel, and if she is, is it really, uh, is, is it, what do we say about Samuel's place of the dead? Where is he at? What do we say about heaven and hell? Boy, Samuel 28 here is certainly, I think, a challenging text. This is a, a well, I'd say it a fun one, kind of tongue-in-cheek, uh, but this this is a weird one. This is one of those things that, mm -hmm. that really only happens here. We get a little hint of something like this in 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 22. Um, but this is, I mean, this is a carried on conversation with something that isn't yeah. quite human, maybe. Um, and so this is this is a fun one to dig into and kind of unpack all those, all those odd questions. Yeah, it, it really is. It's one of those texts, too, that I tend to go to whenever people are asking me about ghosts and spirits and necromancy, and and people ask me about that a lot more than you would think. <laughs> so <laughs> I tend to go here to I, I really not answer questions so much as just conjure up, uh, pun intended, some new questions, but about how we read the scriptures and and what we what we believe about what it means uh for a spirit to appear to someone, you know, is it demonic? Are, are people wandering the earth? What does the Bible say? And I know that we're not going to answer all those questions to everyone's satisfaction today, but we're certainly going to touch on them. So I think that before we dive into the text, though, it makes sense that we begin together in prayer. And if you would lead us in that prayer, I'd be grateful. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we endure so many times of despair and difficulty in this life. When we face those times, we pray that you would help us to rejoice and to lean on your word, those places where you have promised to speak to us, even in our times of greatest despair and distress, not looking to things that are beyond our power or beyond understanding, but to that revelation that you have given to us in the Holy Scriptures. 
that we might see your light and your hope that you give to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name do we pray. Amen. Amen. So before we dive into our text today, I think it's a good idea that we catch ourselves up a little bit. Maybe share with the people what happened just prior to this that brings us to Saul seeking a witch. Sure. So uh, chapter 27, and what we're going to see here in kind of 26, 27, 28, 29, is we've got two kind of parallel storylines. Then we kind of we kind of jump back and forth between them. So a lot of these things are kind of happening at the same time as each other. Uh, kind of the precipitating event, if you will, is in chapter 26. David and Saul have an encounter, and uh, David spares Saul's life, had the opportunity where he could have killed him and, and didn't. Um, and after that, they go their separate ways, uh, David and Saul do. They don't really uh, reunite, so to speak, after that point. In chapter 27, we follow David first, and David flees to uh, to the Philistines, and he finds himself uh, with Akish, one of the leaders uh, of the Philistine army, and uh, so he kind of hides out there. And uh, David, of course, from his previous episode, uh, chapter twenty one of this book, where he pretends to be insane and all those kinds of things, um, he, I think his odds of being safe, at least, maybe not welcomed with open arms, but safe from Saul's pursuit among the Philistines. This is kind of a clever move, actually, by David, I think. Then in chapter 28, uh, we begin with, in those days. Um, So it kind of gives us the idea that at about the same time that David is fleeing Saul and kind of seeking refuge with the Philistines, this is what Saul is doing at the same time. And looking a little further ahead than what will come next, Saul is preparing for what will be called eventually the battle at Mount Gilboa, uh, the Israelites against the Philistines. That's kind of what we're gearing up for here, and that's why uh, Saul is seeking the word of the Lord, as it were, in chapter 28. Exactly. In fact, the first two verses of chapter 28 probably belonged better with our conversation yesterday. I'm just going to read those two and essentially finish up what was going on in the narrative that began um, in our previous episode. So I'm going to read 28, 1 and 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And then the next verse says, Now Samuel had died, and so it goes on to the next narrative. So this is David. He is hiding amongst the Philistines. He and his, uh, I guess his men, his little band, I guess there's 600 or so by this point, are in Ziklag, a, a city on the southern border of, uh, of Israel. And he's been given that land, that area, to, I guess, have a compound for his activities. And as we talked about yesterday, he is telling Achish that I'm doing all this great battling against your enemy Israel, but but really he's doing battle against the enemies of Israel, and, and for what it's worth, the enemies of Achish too. Uh, before we move into the main focus of our text today, I want to ask you, what do you think about David's deception here? Um, you know, yesterday, our, our guest, we, we sort of went, we hemmed and hawed about it, both of us a little bit about, you know, is David uh, serving God in this way? Is he, does he have selfish motivations? And, and while the scriptures aren't clear, 
I think it opens us up to speculation. You know, what do you think? You uh, you took the words out of my mouth. The scriptures are not clear. Um, that's my fallback uh, kind of go to answer when I when of I don't want to take a hard a hard line on something. Um, we see this also uh, this this likewise deception here. I mean, and even the the ambiguous way he says this, you shall know what your servant can do. Mm -hmm. What does that mean mm -hmm. exactly? What's David trying to say there? Or is he being intentionally ambiguous? I think he's probably being intentionally ambiguous and much the same way back in chapter 21 when he pretends to be insane. Um, there's, there's a lot of self-preservation going on here. Um, it's not specifically said that this contradicts God's will. It's not specifically said that he's doing it in accord with God's will either. Um, mm -hmm. I think this is probably a reminder of two things. And the first one is that maybe in contrast to what the world often says about our lives as Christians, we do actually have in, in following God's will uh, quite a lot of freedom um, to, to go about our lives and make various decisions for ourselves in the way that our lives will play themselves out. Um, and on the other hand, um, that even, even the giants of the faith, if you will, uh, even your Davids, uh, much like your Abrahams and your Moseses, uh, even they are under the curse of sin. Even they have those self uh, preserving tendencies. Uh, they're not perfect by any means. And I think we see a little glimpse here of some things that David did that, you know, frankly, might have been kind of questionable. Um, ultimately, of course, God goes on to use those things and David's self-preservation for the good of Israel. David goes on to be a good king um, until he's not, and then he is again, but that's for a later discussion. Um, sure. But I, I think we see kind of both and here. That, mm -hmm. that there is some freedom in in the life of the faithful, but also that, you know, we still have to contend with even the most faithful, if you will, have to contend with this kind of self-preserving that's that sin within us that we do battle against. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, he's living to die another day or maybe living to fight another day, depending on how you want to phrase it. And so, yeah, that, that intentional ambiguity is seen, David says, well, you shall know what your servant can do. And of course, David means just that. You know, you know what I can do. You've seen how I've defeated enemies. I'm not going to mention which ones exactly. And then Hakish, of course, perceives, yeah. And so he says, and I'm sure you picked up on this, and I love it. He says, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. What a boring way to translate that from the Hebrew. <laughs> it, it misses so much. I'm going to make you my bodyguard for life. But you know, it in Hebrew, it literally says, and I will make you the keeper of my head. Now, that makes sense, thinking of the king of Gath and David, who, of course, um, relieved Goliath of his head. Yeah, this is a great little phrase in Hebrew. And, you know, you can see bodyguard, it, that's basically what it means, but it does not at all catch that. I mean, the keeper of one's head is such a great, uh, and, and it's really um, kind of an almost an intimate sort of trusting sort of thing to call someone the keeper of your head. I mean, that's that envelops everything. You're almost reminded um, of the way that uh, Potiphar and then even Pharaoh later on will entrust Joseph 
with everything in their household and everything under their control. This is this is that level of thing. And of course, in Hebrew, it's very much a play on, as you mentioned, uh, the David and Goliath scene, uh, where he was also in a twisted way, the keeper of Goliath's head. That's right. Yeah, back in 17, he kept the, uh, Goliath's head. And, and, and so there's also, I don't know that this is the intention from Akish to be a double entendre, but but certainly the uh, Holy Spirit and the writer of 1 Samuel is is wanting to kind of give the irony of this statement because David is going to be responsible for defeating the Philistines eventually. Uh, he will he will remove their heads, so to speak, in a figurative way. Um, so, so that sort of kind of sums up, it, it puts a pause on the situation that's going on with David and Achish as we move into Saul dealing with the reality that Yahweh has stopped communicating with him. Way back in 16, we're told, 1614, now the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from Yahweh tormented him. We talked about that, but here we are. We're seeing that God has not been talking to Saul, and yet he's needing advice. And, and time and again, we see Saul refuse, in a way, to turn to God for advice through his priest and through the means that God gave him. But I guess at some point he was so desperate he even wanted the Lord to answer him, and he hasn't been. And that's where we find ourselves. I'm going to read verses 3 through 7. Now Samuel died. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of Yahweh, Yahweh did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Okay, pausing just right there. So yeah, God's quit talking to Saul. And, and when Saul finally got around to seeking God, he finds that out um, and he's worried. But then he takes things into his own hands. Uh, just, just, just amazing. The the establish. You know, we're getting some summary here, right? Because you know, we, hey, remember Samuel? Okay, and remember how Saul put the mediums of the land? Okay. Well, then now that you're caught up, here's what happens. Um, wh what do we see going on here? Well, this is, I think, uh, one of the first things we look at is, you know, we are setting the stage, right? Remember, Samuel's dead. That's going to be important here in a few more verses. Remember, no more mediums and necromancers in the land where Saul is. That's going to be important in a minute. Um, and and the kind of the clinching moment here is verse 4 and verse 5. The Philistines are assembled and encamped at Shunem, which is an encroachment upon Israelite land. There's really no turning back from the battle at this point, right? The Philistines are coming. And... Israel goes and encamps at Gilboa, and he can look and see this army, and he's afraid. So now this is kind of the, the uh, precipitating moment, if you will, that Saul is now afraid, not only for his life, but also for his 
uh, his armies, his land, I mean, all of these things over which he is still king, uh, however briefly it might be at this point. Um, but he is still king. He's still afraid for himself and for his land and for his people. And the question then becomes, where do we turn? Where do we look? And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. Uh, we don't know exactly what it means that he inquired of the Lord. That sounds like prayer to me, but how persistent was he? Uh, what, what did he ask? You know, and things like that. We just don't know. And the Lord did not answer him. And then we have the string. These are the three big ones in Old Testament Israel. This is how God speaks to his people by dreams or visions, by the Urim, which is shorthand here for the Urim and the Thummim, which are paired together. Uh, we get that first in uh, Exodus, let's see, Exodus 28 is where those show up for the first time. Uh, and then they're all over actually in 1 Samuel, how we discern the will of God, uh, or by the prophets, because Samuel is dead. And Saul does not have a prophet, not a named one at least, and certainly not Samuel. Um, and so barring uh, God speaking through those three normal means, uh, by the visions and dreams, or by the Urim and Thummim, which would require the priest, um, or by the prophets. So we've kind of gone here, right, through the gamut. Um, Saul presumably has tried prayer and has not received a dream or a vision in answer. He has presumably gone to the priest with the Urim and the Thummim and has not gotten an answer, and there's no Samuel to get an answer from. So he does indeed take matters into his own hands. And now, uh, I don't know if there's any significance, honestly, to his very specific instruction to seek a woman who is a medium. I don't, I don't make a lot of that. Maybe there's something to be made. I'm happy to learn uh, what that might be. Um, but we're, I mean, I think he already has in mind exactly what's next. If prayer didn't work and the priest didn't work and I don't have Samuel, well, I'm going to go and get Samuel. I agree with you. I, I think it's, it's not like he's saying, oh, oh, go search for me a medium, but make sure she's a woman. I think that probably was, um, it wasn't a gender-specific vocation, but certainly uh, I think most women were the ones who did that. So I think he's just saying, go find me a woman who does this. Uh, now, let's talk a little bit, though, about mediums and necromancers, because for all the things that Saul had done wrong, and it tends to be the emphasis of Saul not following God's will, seeking after his own glory, not turning to the Lord when he needs to. Here, we were told that he cast out the mediums and the necromancers out of the land, and we think, well, that's a good thing. Leviticus 19, God says, do not turn to mediums or necromancers, do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am Yahweh your God. But he also says, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, their blood shall be upon them. So once again, we see Saul doing the will of the Lord, casting out the necromancers, but not doing it completely. So he sent them all out and then very hypocritically now wants to seek one out. And that's also going to be very important. But uh, who are the necromancers? Who are the mediums? You know, a lot of people, and I will say too, this whole segment that we're about to read, well, you know, a lot of people use this, modern day so-called mediums, use this to claim that dead, communication with the dead is possible and that it's it's even, I guess, 
if Saul did it, I don't know why they would use him as a good example, but if Saul was able to do it, <laughs> then it's able to be done, even though the Bible clearly forbids it. So, you know, I guess the questions I'm asking are, why is it forbidden? Who are they? And do you also think that maybe Saul had incompletely followed God's law, or maybe I'm missing something? I think that's right. I think uh, in terms of keeping up appearances, you could certainly send them out of the land and then play the, um, you know, look how merciful I am sort of card. Um, I'm going to keep God's will, but I'm also going to be good to you or, or spare you or whatever the case. Um, but yeah, this this medium necromancy, I mean, uh, without without going into too great a detail or, you know, and making an effort not to make too hasty of a generalization. I mean, we're also speaking of anything in our modern day of, you know, the, the practices of voodoo or um, things like Ouija boards and crystal balls and, and all of that kind of stuff should kind of be considered, if not exactly the same as this, at least in the same camp. Um, all of these things ultimately are looking for answers to questions that either God has not given for us to have an answer or has already answered in the scriptures, right? And so when, when we ask why, right, I really do think Saul has reached a point of desperation here. Um, he's, we saw already that the spirit of Yahweh has departed from him and that there's a spirit tormenting him. And, and that's kind of a, that by itself is a tricky passage to be fair, um, it's kind of tricky to deal with what exactly is Saul doing, uh, what's going on in his mind, what's going on with his soul, with his faith in God and things like, I mean, these are tough questions to answer at this point in Saul's life. And so this is a moment of desperation, I think. And I think he probably knows, and his servants clearly know also where they still are. And they seem to know that it's going to work. Um, uh, in fact, the the medium herself seems more surprised by everything than Saul does, and this this kind of knowledge still in the back of people's minds that well that that would accomplish something um, is is a little frightening, honestly. Um, that that we're gonna we're gonna go beyond what God has told us, and we're gonna we're gonna look for answers elsewhere. I think experience would bear out for a lot of people that everybody knows somebody or everybody knows of a story where this and that happened with the Ouija board or with the medium or with the um, whatever, whatever else you want to you want to say about it, um, where something does happen. Some communication happens, something kind of supernatural does happen. And we kind of as Christians, I think, kind of have to unpack a little bit more what is happening there and and why might we seek those things out and is there an alternative is there a better way well precisely i i don't believe that god prohibited um seeking after mediums and necronancers because it never worked you know i i mean not that what we see is what's happening for instance you know i i preach teach and confess that when, when people die, the scriptures are right, right? They, they are not accessible to people on this earth. They're in heaven um, or hell, depending on what the situation is. However, um, it, that doesn't say that every encounter with someone who appears to be the spirit or ghost of someone passed on isn't what you're seeing. For instance, uh, I think that this particular story will prove 
that sometimes it works, but but whether it's working in the way that we think it is, we're not sure. You mentioned about how the woman herself is surprised. One of my favorite parts, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But, you know, it's it's I think that we have to be careful if 99 percent of so-called spiritual encounters are just bupkis. What about that one percent? And, and if that's if that is something that's spiritual, does is spiritual mean good, right? Demonic activity is spiritual. Yeah. So I think there's a reason why we are forbidden, not just because God says, well, I want to make sure that you only seek things through me, although that's the only true way we should be seeking information. But at the same time, he knows what danger there is to open ourselves up to spirits who aren't friendly to us. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Right. There's so many things that we could kind of put in that same category. Um, Not that they're the same thing as necromancy or visiting a medium right. or what have you. But these things that, that God, he doesn't forbid them because they don't work. Um, he doesn't forbid them because they're um, even necessarily. Now, I, I tend to think that necromancy is, um, but he doesn't forbid things because they're necessarily inherently evil. But again, he's protecting us from these things that are dangerous, right? Why does he forbid this? It is precisely because it does work. It is precisely because you can open yourself up, if you will, to to the realm of angels and demons. And those things are dangerous mm-hmm. for your salvation, right? And and God wants us to um, stay, stay the course, so to speak, which is to say, stay on the path that the Holy Spirit sets us on in faith and continue to seek God in the places where he has promised to be. But we'll get to that toward the end, I'm sure. Of course, but especially when it comes to necromancy or trying to communicate with the dead or even just a sort of generic idea of ghosts and spirits. You know, I, I talked with the youth and I talk with adults, too, and we and like, listen, you know, if if you see the image of Grandma Schlitzendinger and she's passed on, you, you might think, but wait a minute, that couldn't be demonic because it brought me comfort to see her and, and be able to 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 feel her presence or, or whatever the case may be. You know, the thing is. Yes, but what does it introduce? It introduces doubt in God's clear word about where faithful Grandma Schlitzendinger is. If she's wandering the earth able to appear to you, then that puts a doubt in God's word. So even if an experience may not be particularly scary, doesn't mean that it doesn't have um, evil or ulterior intent. And I think that is where people get confused. Also, and just sort of to point out there, one of my pet peeves with ghosts is they always seem to be like uh, 18th century (laughs) ghosts that (laughs) still have their clothing. Uh, I've always wondered about that. But anyway, and and that's not going to be the focus of our whole conversation today. But I just think it is brought up by this particular topic. Um, we're right here at our break, so I think it's a good time for us to take just a few moments to think about what we've talked about already. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of what happens. Don't go anywhere. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. 
But they need our help because Good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Roger Mullet, pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Churubusco, Indiana. Listen, folks, I'm glad that you're with us. I hope our study's blessing you with God's Word. You can catch Thy Strong Word in St. Louis on AM850 or stream it live or on demand at kfuo.org. But you can take the show on the road. I always like to remind you of that because oh, sometimes I forget myself. But I use KFUO's own mobile app to listen to shows like Concord Matters and uh, Sharper Iron. Um, and every now and then I'll, I'll, I'll go over to Thy Strong Word and hear how it came out. But folks, I want you to be able to access any of KFUO's fine programming and enriching content anytime you want. So download their app. It's worth it. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, you can. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook and say hi. All right, Pastor Mullet, we're back. So I'm going to go ahead and just read right into the next section because uh, we have a lot to go through. But I'm going to uh, read just the first half of basically what is the next paragraph. Um, Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by Yahweh, As Yahweh lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So Saul knows he's doing something wrong because he's disguising himself. And, and then when he goes to this woman, she's basically like, hey, are you a cop? You have to tell me if you're a cop because <laughs> this is illegal. Uh, so Saul knows he's not doing right by this woman, but she doesn't know it's Saul yet, does she? No, not yet. Uh, that'll become clear, of course, in the next verse. Um, but yeah, so he's disguised and it's at night. And I think that too, while not um maybe not directly intentionally done by Saul of course uh, Saul's doing it under the cover of night to add to his um his ability to uh, avoid detection i think um but we can look at that and see he's wearing a disguise he's got other garments on and they're going at night which is to say they're in the darkness right um the phrase that i throw around every so often is that'll preach right they're in the darkness on this they are in the dark they're away from God. They're walking in a way away from God's will, right? Which is very much in the darkness. I think um, the parallel that comes immediately to mind, and I am not trying to draw a perfect parallel here, but is very much in John chapter three, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Uh, I think there is something to that throughout the scriptures, the time of day that things happen, how much light or darkness there might be um, that Saul is coming in the dark, seeking the light. He's not going to find it. 
Uh, Nicodemus right. comes as an example in the darkness and he comes to he who is the light of the world and indeed finds the light, right? And and I think I think there is a little bit of that kind of underlying here that Saul is is truly seeking the light. He is I think he genuinely thinks he is seeking after God's word for him in this moment. He's just tragically looking in all the wrong places. Um, here we see uh, the woman saying he's cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land, which might suggest what we talked about before the break. It might suggest that he's cast them out so that the law no longer applies to them so that he doesn't have to kill them unless they were mm. to come back into the land. Um, that that might be an implication there. Um, but then, of course, Saul invokes the the name of Yahweh um, and is is going to protect her from this. Just Just do it for me and I'll make sure you're safe, which is probably the first little clue that it might be Saul. Right. I mean, he could have said, well, I'm the guy who did that, so don't worry about it. Or, you know, I'm Saul, so I, I'm okay with it. Uh, but it, it's also interesting, I think, a little bit that she seems to be citing God's law. I'm not, certainly she doesn't agree with it, but she says, why are you laying a trap to bring about my death? So she knows what God's law is, the punishment. And then Saul, who the Lord has left him, but he's then basically, he can't say by his own authority, so he finally says by the authority of Yahweh, no punishment will come upon you for this thing. But that's, I think that's a misuse of, of his of His word, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is an oath, right? Saul does this in a few different places. Um, that This as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives um, mm-hmm. is, is kind of a, a so-called oath formula, right? This is how they... I, I swear that such and such a thing will not happen. Um, and and this, is, this is pretty clearly a misuse, right? Because he's about to do something that is expressly forbidden by God. Well, just add two more verses. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Now, I know it's right in the climax of the action here, but just taking a pause, I love it because the woman, she says, okay, who do you want me to bring up for you? He says, Samuel. The woman sees Samuel and she screams. And, I, and when I do this as a class, I say, why do you think she screamed? And usually people catch on pretty quick. Maybe this is the first time it's actually worked. Maybe, that could maybe she's be. used to Maybe she's used to like, okay, I'm going to bring up so-and-so for you. And then she's like, she's afraid because she's like, whoa, there actually is someone coming up. Now, I'm, we're only speculating, but it's just interesting. What do you take? Do you see it differently on why she cries out with a loud voice? Is it just part of her necromancy or is she really sort of startled? And she, or is it just because now she realizes that he's Saul? I mean, I think all of those are certainly possibilities. I love the idea that this is the first time it's worked. That just, oh man, <laughs> that just put a huge smile on my face when you said that, because what a great what a great possibility that is. Um, it's interesting, though, we don't get anything. I mean, this could also be like the immediacy of the appearance. Saul says, bring sure. up Samuel for me, and immediately the woman sees Samuel. So uh, we don't know for sure. She might have been doing something in between verse 11 and verse 12. Um, that's just not given to us. But I think it's, I mean, it's also the realization. It's, um, and it's the appearance, right? And when we have the, 
the appearance, I mean, I would liken this to whenever we see the appearance of angels before mankind throughout the scriptures, the first line out of an angel's mouth is without fail, fear not, do not be afraid. Why? Because their appearance is kind of terrifying. Um, right. If you read Ezekiel, especially, that's kind of, wow, that, that would scare somebody. Um, so I think it's that as well. And this realization now, right, Samuel, not just anybody. I don't just want to talk to somebody from the spirit world, whatever that means exactly. I want to talk to Samuel. And I think that then, uh, obviously, this woman, whoever she is, I'm fascinated by who this woman might be. She clearly knows what's going on. She knows the law. She knows about this battle coming up. She knows that Samuel is dead. I mean, she knows all this stuff. Um, and and now she puts the pieces together and realizes, oh, oh, yeah. this is Saul. Yeah, and he asked for Samuel. I love also, though, and it's partly partly because this woman is obviously, as you just said, well versed in, in what's going on. But Samuel doesn't need any more introduction besides Samuel. You know, he's kind of like Cher, right? He's just one name. Oh, I know That's exactly right. who you're talking about. <laughs> Samuel is famous enough. His title, lineage, hometown, none of that needs to be mentioned. Okay, yeah, I got gotcha. you. I got you, fam. I'll bring up Samuel. Yeah. And so she brings up Samuel. She's afraid. Um, but then this next part is, is it's interesting. I'm going to read a few more verses. The, the, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, the scriptures tell us that he says, bring up Samuel, and the woman saw Samuel. That wasn't a quote, that was the Holy Spirit inspiring the text here, that the woman saw Samuel. But then when she describes Samuel, it's pretty generic. I mean, it, it's almost as if the Holy Scriptures hadn't revealed to us that it was indeed Samuel, that we would think she was... Um, and just putting on, like, like, okay, he wants to see a prophet. Well, what would a prophet look like? Oh, I see a god coming up out of the earth. Oh, what's he look like? Well, he's old and wrapped in a robe. Well, that's like 80% of Israel. So <laughs> it's just interesting that in her description, which is really generic, that convinces Saul that it was indeed the prophet Samuel. Am I not being fair to the description? What do you think? What's going on? New York is vague. Um, and it and it is odd, isn't it, when the woman saw Samuel. And that's not one of them, as you said, it's not one of them trying to say, oh, that looks like Samuel. And it's, it's. I think there is a little bit of da uh, David, no, the other one, Saul. Uh, I think there's a little mm -hmm. bit of Saul kind of seeing what he wants to see here. And, and we could certainly say that the medium is very well prepared to, um, to play along, as it were. Because uh, that's frankly part of her job. I think the clincher for Saul is the robe. Because when Samuel spoke what ended up being Samuel's last words to Saul, all the way back in chapter 15, the tearing of Samuel's robe was a big part of that text. Um, I think that's kind of the clincher, is mm. that he's wrapped in a robe. And um, so it's interesting, I think, that... Um, in verse 13, Saul is the one who tells her, don't be afraid. It's usually the angel that says that. This is Saul, do not be afraid. And what? And this question, what do you see? And the woman describing the appearance seems to make it clear that Saul can't actually see whatever it is that's happening. Oh, yeah, I never thought of that. Hmm. 
Uh, well, you know, I never thought of that. And also, just piggybacking on your mention about the robe back in 15, verse 27, you know, Saul sees the skirt of his robe and it tore. To, to defend um, the idea that this is generic, and I actually think this happens more in Scripture than, we're, than we realize, is that while this is presented as a quote, I really do think this is more of a sentence that's representative of all the things that she told him. So it says an old man is coming up. He's wrapped in a robe. I don't think that means that she did not go on to describe exactly what the old man looked like or describe what the robe looked like. Um, perhaps it, us being told it was torn might help, but I, but we see this all the time. Like we see what the crowds are saying, and it's like one or two sentences. Well, certainly that's not the only thing the crowds are saying. So I, I do think that maybe part of the genericness of it is just to kind of move the the narrative along, because <laughs> the narrative is that Samuel is about this uh, prophecy for Saul, and, and that's sort of what's in focus here. Whereas I think we do get bogged down. I sure know I do in the whole mechanics of well, is it Samuel? Is it a demon just acting like Samuel? Is it an angel appearing in the form of Samuel? Is the woman bringing him forth, or is God bringing him forth? Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I, th I think sometimes we get bogged down in those details, and like I said, I know I do, uh, but certainly that's probably not the main point. No, fair enough. No, I'm uh, I'm totally on board with calling this a generic. I mean, and this is this is whatever this thing is. Um, Saul is convinced that it's Samuel and, and he behaves before it. I mean, bowed with his face to the ground and paid mm -hmm. homage. That's the posture of worship, right? And even before the angels, uh, I mean, the angels tell mankind not to do that. Um, but I mean, this is like, we've reached the point of desperation here for Saul and yeah. Saul knew that it was Samuel, or at least convinced himself that it was Samuel and is prepared to go so far as to treat him as if it was God himself, because again, right, Samuel being the prophet, the messenger, and so on. I mean, Saul really is convinced this guy has the word of the Lord for me. Yeah, and one thing you brought up that I'd ever ne never really considered was the fact that he doesn't see him, or at least sees doesn't see him clearly. Because when she describes, she says, I see a God, Elohim, coming up out of the earth. So he has this sort of divine appearance. That's the generic word for God or gods. And um, as you said, he doesn't seem to see what's going on. But what happens next is Samuel speaks to Saul. So let's read those, verses 15 through, oh, I'd say about 19. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since Yahweh has turned from you and become your enemy? Yahweh has done to you as he spoke by me, for Yahweh has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, Yahweh has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, Yahweh will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow... You and your sons shall be with me. Yahweh will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And we'll we'll stop right there. Uh, I guess, spoiler alert, Saul falls again to the ground with fear. But, you know, it, Samuel said to Saul, the scriptures say. 
Um, and then it's very much a, hey, if God's left you, why do you bother in me? Which is, you know, a fair point, because Samuel and Saul weren't exactly <laughs> the best of friends back in the day when Samuel was still, you know, walking around the earth. Yeah, this is, I mean, so the million dollar question, at least, would be to me, if I was a listener and not the guest at the moment, is what does this guy think? Is this actually Samuel? Um, I Boy, this is this is weird. It's so weird. Um the, the repetition here of basically the same words that Samuel said to Saul back in chapter 15, it's very much the same stuff. Um, you did not carry out fierce wrath against Amalek and so on. Uh, that's at the beginning. I think that's at the beginning of chapter 15 as well. I'm pretty sure that all happens in kind of quick succession here. Um, but it's important to note, I think, is that this figure who is labeled Samuel um, whoever he happens to be, is is only accusatory. He's only making accusations, and I think that's an important an important point to remember. Um, that uh, when when angels sent by God, um, Gabriel, Michael, etc., they they don't bring accusations; they bring good news. Um, when demons come, and particularly the prince of demons, if you will. Uh, I mean, his name, Satan, is from that Hebrew word Satan, which means accuser, right? And so this this very, I mean, he's just repeating, and it could well be, if we take it to be a demon, this is very much um, Luther's position, even if not the Lutheran position collectively. Um, Luther is very, very uh, I mean, strict almost on this, that this, this is clearly a demon um, and it, and it's making accusations. That's what this right. is, is doing over and over. You didn't do this. You did not carry out the fierce wrath. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you and you're going to die tomorrow and your sons are going to die tomorrow and all these things. Um, God has turned away from you, right? Yahweh is your enemy. Um, those are the sorts of things that the devil would love to throw into the face sure. of a believer or somebody who's on the fence or not quite sure, right? Um, I I would have a hard time, I guess, flat out denying that this is Samuel um, or proving that it isn't Samuel. And at the same time, this is this is just not quite, something seems off. Uh, if uh, I hate I hate staking theological positions on the phrase something seems off about that, <laughs> right. um, but but it it's it doesn't seem quite right. And of course, Luther, if you read Luther's little portion on this, makes it, I mean, just over and over and over. This cannot be Samuel because this would contradict God's command. This cannot be Samuel because necromancy is against God's law, and why would God allow that to happen? Now to refute Luther a little things happen that are contrary to God's law all the time. Mm -hmm. And he uses them people, for good. People sin all the time. That's mm -hmm. contrary to God's will and law, is it not, right? And even believers do things that are contrary to God's will and law all the time because we sin often and much, right? But God uses those things. And I mean, so I would, I would be sympathetic to the argument that, no, she shouldn't have tried to conjure him up and yet God allowed her to for the purpose of delivering this message and kind of confirming what Samuel had already said. I would be sympathetic to that. Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I don't with see my to flat out deny it. With my whole, you know, Grandma Schlitzendinger defense, and that is that the demonic might uh, make a believer appear to be 
accessible on earth because it's contrary to Scripture. If you apply that strictly to this situation, then you can say, okay, either the witch is faking the whole thing, which doesn't seem likely because she's so surprised. I think that's why we're told that part, to, to kind of alleviate the idea that she's faking it. Or this is part of this evil spirit that God is allowing to deceive Saul, right? So we've, we've seen that already. Again, we establish at the top of the show that sometimes these spiritual things that happen are actually happening, but they're demonic. So that would be the sort of the demonic uh, Luther argument. But the other idea, I think, is that Yahweh could have allowed Samuel to appear in the same manner as Moses and Elijah appeared at the Transfiguration. See, they appeared bodily, but they were also passed on. Uh, now, I know that, of course, Christ was involved there, so that might be a huge you know, mitigating factor in it all. Uh, but um, I, I hear you kind of going back and forth, which makes sense, because not only do the commentators go back and forth, I think any good theologian that looks at this has to say, yeah, it's confusing. And, and, and it makes me wonder then, as I said earlier, as much as we're interested in the mechanics of it, really, even if it's a demonic force that God's allowing to happen, then that demonic force is still going to be prophesying something that will come to pass. And if it is Samuel being brought up, then perhaps like at the Transfiguration, we shouldn't make any um, <laughs> a doctrine based on it, on the who's accessing heaven and hell or who can, who can come back from the dead, etc., because, you know, God can work outside of those things. But then we have that one little verse where he says, Tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Now, if this is Samuel um, and eternity and, and, and at the bosom of Abraham, um, then that's saying that Saul and his sons will be dead, but of course saved. And if it's demonic, then that's saying that Saul and his sons will be dead, but but in hell. Uh, and I know that we're probably not interested in, in condemning Saul to heaven or hell, but what does it say, right? What does that mean? And I think the answer you might give me is, it just means they're going to be dead. But still, should we, what should we, what should we say about that if someone were to ask us? No, I think you're spot on, right? That's exactly what this is saying. And it's, it's kind of ambiguous, just like much of Saul's spiritual life and situation is ambiguous. You know, not to give away the end here, but uh, Saul does die in the battle. Um, spoiler alert, I guess. For, uh, that's a couple chapters away still. But, um, but he does die in this battle, right? And we are kind of left to wonder. I mean, the spirit of Yahweh departed from him. And now he's talking to whoever this is via the medium. Um, is I mean, that's pretty clear, right? You're, you and your son shall be with me, which is to say dead in whichever place it right. is. If it's Samuel, then heaven. And if it's not, then uh, right. And but his <laughs> death is ambiguous. Um, you know, he, boy, I'm really giving spoilers now. I mean, Saul dies by his own hand, right? Right. And right. so, and so there's that to unpack, which I won't do because we're running out of time and it's not my chapter to talk about. Um, no, and we still have five more verses in the yeah, chapter know, we're talking about today. Oh my goodness. There's just so much. <laughs> well, no, there. it's as my fault as anybody's. Let's get those in. I don't think they really add a ton more. Um, starting with verse 20 through the end of the chapter. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. 
And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. And he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose, and they went away that night. So Saul is utterly distraught. I mean, who wouldn't be by this particular prophecy? But I have to say, I love this woman. She must be, uh, her spirit must be of the Midwest because she's basically like, okay, I've done what you want. Now here, do what I want. Eat a little something and go. <laughs> you, you need your strength to get on, uh, get on out of here. You know, I, I think she's being very nicely saying, uh, okay, I've done what you want. Time for you to go. Yeah, I think you get that especially, right, with uh, I have taken my life in my hand and listened, right? I mean, I've done this thing right. that could get me killed. Now, why don't you just you, you just get going, leave me alone so I don't have to, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. I didn't say it was going to be good news. Up off the floor on your way. <laughs> I think one of the other things we can grab onto just in these last couple of verses here is we've had this, uh, you know, he refused and said, I will not eat. And he he made that. There was something else in Saul about not eating that was some some time ago, um, uh, several chapters ago, about making this vow of not eating, and his people weren't going to eat and all of that. And even here, he's kind of like, I will not eat. And yet God God provides for him to eat, right? Uh, I'm kind of reminded of uh, Elijah in the wilderness, right, when he's distressed. and uh, And sometimes the answer is, take a nap and have a snack. Uh, oh, sometimes, yeah, precisely. Right. Sometimes when we're distressed, the answer from God is take a nap and have a snack. And that's and God here again provides. Right. He's weak um, bodily. And obviously this encounter with Samuel or the demon or whatever the case is is distressing. Um, That's a I mean, that's a gentle word for what this would be. Um, And this woman, you know, by God's grace knows you need you need to eat and you need to go home and you need to to face this thing that is coming next. Uh, So he does. Well, he does, and that's where we're going to have to leave it. Uh, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Roger Mullet, Pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Churubusco, Indiana. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. Tomorrow we return to David, the fugitive king-in-waiting, who's in hiding amongst the Philistines. But he finds himself in a tight spot as he and his men march with the Philistine army to attack Israel. But the Philistine lords don't trust him, so they appeal to King Achish to just send he and his men away. David avoids having to fight his own people, but this isn't the end of David's trouble with the Philistines or the other enemies of God. Find out about that and more tomorrow when we come together again. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.